We'll turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew 7. That's where we'll, we'll begin uh, our time this morning. Last week, we kicked off our fall series uh, called How We Become Like Jesus. Uh, it's a series that I personally have been looking forward to for a long time. I was challenged by someone that if I ever get excited about something, I need to keep it to myself for like over a year before I talk about it. And so I've been excited about this idea for a long time. Uh, and it's been brewing in my head. And so I'm excited uh, about it uh, because... I believe the content uh, in, in this series, the scriptures that we're going to look at, uh, has the potential to just radically change our lives and our church if we really take it to heart, because, uh, because I think it's a series that will be immensely, immensely practical. The longer that I am a pastor, the more it seems like the things that hold us back uh, from Christ-likeness, from the, the measure of the fullness of Christ, as Ephesians 4 says, are, are typically aren't like meth addictions or these like really egregious things um, but are really practical things just like little uh, going through life uh, kind of uh, as simpletons as the the passage and uh, we looked at last week said uh, just not not taking the teachings of Christ into our everyday life I don't think it's you know a lack of information or definitely not a lack of access to books or podcasts or or you know Bibles or anything like that it's just the daily stuff of our lives that go that goes untouched by by Jesus by our King, and last week we we, we looked uh, for the first time at a how to become like Jesus map, uh, which is uh, on the other page from your sermon notes. Uh, there's just kind of a, a a sheet or two of bonus content that will be in the bulletin every week this fall as we look at this uh, this idea. Uh, and I, I'd encourage you to go back to listen to the podcast. We went through it a little bit. Uh, but this map, that, that uh, triangle and square, the triangle and rectangles there at the top, uh, is uh, kind of a, a working theory pulled out of scripture uh, and church history on how people actually, actually change. Um, so just to recap it really quick, you see around the triangle there are three elements, kind of three ingredients to transformation. First is teaching. Like we need, need to know uh, what, what is true according to scripture? What, what did Jesus actually say and do? What, it, what, is, uh, what is reality uh, is kind of the, the teaching bit there. Uh, so that looks like primarily reading scripture. Like that is the kind of the foundation uh, for life and godliness. And then also teachings like this uh, in a gathered worship service, um, a worship gathering, uh, or whether it's podcasts or books, whatever. Bottom left is practices. Uh, practices are, are rhythms or habits or spiritual disciplines might be the kind of the, the traditional or classic term uh, there where we take that we take the teaching and we and we live it out in really practical ways and then community you can't follow Jesus alone uh, you see Jesus literally never one-on-one -on -one with any of his disciples like they're they're always there in a crowd or in a, in a like a small group of two or three because uh, one, one of the big things with community is that it exposes us uh, it, it, we can't uh, we can live in our blind spots, but our blind spots become abundantly clear to people that we live closely with, and then we can have the gospel and uh, work on those things. And then in the middle, uh, holding it all together, making it all work, is the, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Like, he's not literally physically right here, but he's given us uh, the, the Holy Spirit, uh, his presence, to, to be with us forever. You can think of it like a sailboat. Uh, teaching practice and community are kind of like the rigging and the sails and whatever uh, of the of the boat. Uh, you can get get out into Lake Michigan and put it all up, but if the Holy Spirit wind doesn't blow, then our boat won't go anywhere. So that's kind of like the framework, and we're basically that this this uh, sermon series through the fall, this teaching series is gonna 
uh, ba- kind of dial into each of these different elements and look at what scripture has to say about them and how they might affect our lives. So today uh, is a practice sermon, a sermon on that idea of practice. I want to kind of walk through these three passages that we read in Matthew uh, and, and look at uh, what Jesus teaches us uh, regarding, regarding practice. I think, um, in my personal opinion, pra- the practice part of our, uh, of our little map here has been very neglected uh, in the church the past few decades, uh, maybe a little bit in reaction to what came before and whatnot, but I also think that practice is where the money is. Like, there's unbelievable uh, capacity and power and just opportunity. If you want transformation, there's unbelievable uh, power for transformation if, as we look at the practices. The, the outline is just kind of looking at uh, the nouns or whatever, I guess, of these, these passages uh, in uh, the first two with the house uh, and the yoke. Uh, and then we're going to look at something that I think is kind of an oops uh, that in, the, in recent church history. So let's dive in. Look at the Matthew uh, 7 passage. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and it beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Well, Jesus tells a little parable here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The house uh, represents your life, kind of like your your spiritual, physical, emotional, relational, just kind of like the the substance of your your lived reality uh, on on the earth. And I I love this because this is like such a hardcore way for Jesus to end a sermon. You know, I feel like I try to end with a little pick-me-up, a little like, you know, grace and gospel, and Jesus ends his sermon with like, if you don't do this, you, the house of your life will crash. Like, if you don't do this, you'll die, uh, which he can do. He can pull off. I can't really pull that off, uh, which is why it says, you know, they were amazed at his authority because, like, that's, that's pretty hardcore. Not many, not many humans, apart from, you know, the divine son of God, can, can wrap up a teaching with, like, if you don't do this, you will die. But we see that Jesus, he, he never intended his followers to just hear teaching and then think about it uh, and go on to live however they wanted and just real practically from the, the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, the end of the sermon that we just read, uh, we, see, we see Jesus doing this, this com- combination of like teaching where he tells us reality and then also uh, a practice. Uh, so if you flip back to Matthew uh, chapter 5, I just wanna, want you to see this teaching and practice uh, pattern even in Jesus' own, own teaching. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said, to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is an answerable to the Sanhedrin, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So we have the teaching, the reality, which Jesus is, Jesus is teaching, the reality that he's telling us about is that like, being angry, murder is the most extreme form of anger. And he's saying, like, if you just avoid the most extreme form of anger, that's not really a win, because the reality is that anger can lurk in your heart all other ways. He's addressing the issue of anger, and he's saying, like, we, we need to be diligent uh, about that. But then look, look at the practice that he, 
tells right next. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember, your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Obviously, there's a, a whole sermon or two in this, but I just want you to see this, this coupling here that Jesus has. He has, a, he has a teaching, and then he says, hey, if, you, if you'd like to work on your anger, if you'd like to see that anger melt in your soul, uh, then, then do this practice. Go to people who have something against you and reconcile. And like, go and, and re- restore the relationship. Repent of whatever you've done. Uh, or even just, if you, maybe you haven't done anything. Like sometimes people can have something against you, you know, unfairly. Uh, but you reconcile whatever it takes. You affirm their, uh, uh, their emotions and you, you move towards them. Nothing will melt the anger in your heart like owning your own sin and asking for forgiveness. Anger, one of the dangers of anger uh, is, is that we, we become more and more detached, more and more separated from the things that we need to apologize for, the brokenness in our heart, uh, because then, then we don't have a, a, the upper ground. Like, anger requires the upper ground. And so Jesus is saying, like, hey, real practically, go to a human. Go to the other human, real human, practically, and, and reconcile. It's like, uh, uh, to, to not do this, it's like if you just read the first part, and you're like, wow, anger's really bad. Like, anger's on par with murder. Jesus just, like, dropped the bomb. I'm so convicted because I'm a really angry man. It, but then we don't do anything. It'd be like a dentist saying, like, hey, if you don't floss, your teeth are going to fall out pretty soon. And I'm like, oh, Mr. Dentist, I'm so convicted, and I'm sorry. I'm really sorry about that. And then I leave the dentist's office and, like, eat some pixie sticks and watch some, like, flossing YouTube videos or something that, like, later that week. Uh, my teeth are still going to fall out. Like, it just, it, it's, it, the, it's not going to work. The process of becoming like Jesus uh, is just another, another way of saying sanctification, uh, which is, like, there, there's maybe, like, ten big theological words in Scripture that I think all Christians should, should work to know. Not all of them, uh, but I think sanctification is definitely one of them. And so when we look at this idea of practice, I want to bring it into the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, Jesus' Jesus's Sermon on the Mount shows us this crucial aspect. I have two definitions for you there in, the, in your bulletin, uh, the, some of the bonus content. Let me just read the first definition there. This is from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He says, sanctification, or the process of becoming like Jesus, is the progressive work of God and man that makes us more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. The key point here is that sanctification is a joint effort between you and God. To become like Jesus requires you to put things into practice. Now, a very important point of clarification. Another important theological word in that list of ten is justification. And this is distinctly different because justification is decidedly not a joint project between you and God. It's not a cooperative project. We are justified, made right with God purely by grace through faith. We're adopted into his family solely on what God has done in Christ. But sanctification, the project of becoming more like Jesus in the family of God after our justification, is one in which God and man, we actually work together to become more like Jesus in our actual lives. And the key concept there in your bulletin is this. Without God, we can't. But without us, he won't. Without God, we can't become like Jesus. But without us, without our participation, 
we will not become like Jesus. Now the good news is that this partnership is by no means like 50-50. God does all the heavy lifting uh, far, far and above. It's, it's probably more like 90-10 or 99-1. I don't know. It's probably hard to put some math on it. Uh, but uh, it is contingent on our participation. And I think an example of this is uh, a really sweet moment I had with my son Johnny, who's like 20 months, 21 months now. We had some storms, and they knocked a bunch of branches down in our backyard. And the city uh, will come and pick up branches after a storm. It's super nice. Uh, and so we were dragging the branches from our backyard down the driveway to the street. Uh, and, and Johnny was, like, so adorable in helping me. Like, he's just this, this toddler, but I showed him how to, like, grab the end of the branch. And just with incredible focus, he just slowly dragged it all the way to the road. And then I showed him, like, hey, you don't just, like, leave it halfway there. you got to get it all the way in the pile. So he'd even, like pick it up a second time and drop it on the pile. And the kid, he was like through the roof and it was just melting my heart. But the question is, did I need Johnny to drag those branches there? No, I probably could have done it much faster without him. But I love him so much and I delight to see him grow and become a bigger, fuller, stronger human, more complete, fully formed human that it's a joy to participate with him, to cooperate with him. And also you can... You can hire him if you want, if you have some branches. Like he, that, that kid eats a lot, and so he needs to start contributing to the grocery budget. But this is what it is with God. He's our father, and of course he could do anything and everything he wants, but he has designed reality to be, a, a co- sanctification to be a cooperative project for our growth, to become more fully formed into the image of Christ. And... I know it, this idea of like God and man makes us uncomfortable, but we have to keep the justification and sanctification distinction. And I, we're, we're very afraid of being legalists or you know, being accused of trying to work our way into heaven, uh, which is it's a good to be cautious of that. You know, any sense of earning God's favor, trying to put him in our debt you know, based on what we do. Like, I feel like the classic youth group example is like, I read my Bible every day. Why did she break up with me? Or something like that. Like that is atrocious. That's a heresy. Like we don't, we don't like manipulate God based on what we do. We don't earn our way into heaven. But another one of the key concepts of this fall teaching is that grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. Grace, the reality of grace, that we're justified by grace, obliterates any sense of earning God's favor. But grace is not, is not in tension with us putting out effort, without, with us actually uh, doing things, participating with God. Zach uh, Carter preached a doozy of a sermon a few weeks ago uh, on Ephesians 2, uh, where he talked about that we're saved by grace for good works. Um, I wish I could tell you to go listen to that, but you know that's lost to the, the technical difficulties of recording. But grace destroys any notion of meriting a relationship with God. And if you look at this idea of effort throughout Scripture, it's all over the place. Like, fight the good fight, run the race with endurance, press on for the goal of the upward call of God in Christ. Like, there's all, these, all this language of showing our faith by our works or uh, zealot, be zealous for good works. To, be follow, to follow Jesus, to become like him, which, you know, means being transformed out of our anxious, lustful, angry, frazzled, lonely selves and into the fullness of Christ, it's going to require immense effort on your part. If you want to, like if you, wa- if you want it, like if you like your system, like that's fine. 
And this concept is so obvious in other areas. Like no one would expect to learn Arabic or become, you know, a concert pianist or whatever without putting out effort. And just like the question is like, why do we take such a casual approach to being transformed into the God man, Jesus Christ? Like, why do we expect that to be something that just kind of like willy nilly happens when like, if we all signed up for a marathon today, like we would have to put out a lot of effort to not die at that race. And look back at the text, verse, I'm sorry, yeah, Matthew 7, verses 26. Look how it ends. I think this is a really important distinction. Matthew 7, 26, Jesus ends, But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I just want to point out and ask the question, what is the difference between the wise man and the foolish man? What is the difference, the deal breaker or maker, between your house standing or your house falling down? It's practice. Both of these men had the information. Both of these men had the teaching. But the difference is what they did with it. This parable, I think, is a, a, a way that Jesus is saying, or James says, uh, what good is it to have faith but to not have works? Can that faith save him? It's that same idea. What good is it to have the teaching but not put it into practice? Like, does that teaching actually save you? Can you call that faith? The only way Jesus will save you, the only way he will keep the house of your life standing is if we work out our faith by doing what he says, putting it into practice. So that's the house. Let's look at the yoke. Flip over to Matthew 11. One of the coziest passages in all of Scripture. Matthew 11. Let me read it, uh, starting in verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This passage always just makes my heart kind of swell and long for this, like rest for my soul, that sounds wonderful, Jesus. Uh, but if I'm honest, that's not really like true for me. Like sometimes this seems kind of more like a hallmark sentiment from Jesus or whatever than, than, than a real invitation. And, and a question to you guys, like would you say the, the description that Jesus just gave us, like does that mark the life of most Christians that you know? And the other weird thing about this passage is, like, why would Jesus give tired, burdened people a yoke? Like, that doesn't make any sense. A yoke is a work instrument. It's for oxen to pull, drag a plow over unbroken earth to break up the ground. <coughs> why, I feel like Jesus should say, like, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden. I'll give you a pillow. I know this super cozy spot on a boat. We can take a nap. It'll be great. Why is it a yoke? Why a tool for work? Well, most scholars believe that this yoke metaphor, uh, Jesus didn't make up. This, this was like a popular expression uh, in Jesus' day and age uh, that, that referred to the teaching and the way of life of a rabbi. That there, there are lots of rabbis that had disciples and go, go around and have different teachings and whatnot. And so Jesus is, is just using a popular expression and saying, are you weary and tired in your way of life? Your yoke, 
Are you burnt out trying to figure it out and make it work? Then take on my yoke. Take on my way of life. Take on my way of living, the practices, the habits, the rhythms that fill up my days and learn from me. This is the secret of the, the easy yoke, one of the key concepts for a series. You can't have the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. I think my whole life reading this passage and thinking it's great, uh, but not really understanding how it actually broke into normal life, real reality, was because th this break between the life of Jesus and the lifestyle of Jesus. And to make this clear, let's look at the most sermon analogy quarterback in history, probably, Tom Brady. He's every pastor's best quarterback friend because he gives you tons of sermon analogies. Tom Brady is a quarterback who is wildly successful and has been playing, playing quarterback, the position, football, for uh, lots of years beyond, his, beyond expectations. And I, like to make it even pop even more, Andrew Luck, who at 29, just retired uh, earlier this month because it was too hard on his body. And then Tom Brady's like over 10 years older than Andrew Luck and uh, is still winning Super Bowls. But Brady, Tom Brady is also famous for his like insane, super strict lifestyle. He said when he was 25, he was like hurting and miserable as he was playing in the NFL. And he's like, how am I going to make it? And so he essentially restructured his entire life to be optimized for health and fitness and winning football games. He says at 40, he feels way less pain than he did when he was 25. But his lifestyle is insane. Like, it's crazy. Uh, he has no coffee. Like, I could just stop there. Like, no coffee. What? Um, no, no alcohol, no pop, sugar, bread, uh, the super dialed-in diet. He goes to bed at 9 every night, in season, out of season. Like, he's never, you know, like raging in Vegas or anything, even though he probably could afford to. His, his workouts are perfectly crafted to main strength and mobility and, and all that stuff, and he spends hours and hours and hours and hours looking at film and studying plays and everything, even in the off-season. But now imagine that I want to be, like, be like Tom Brady, and so I go to Boston, uh, next Sunday, uh, I think they're playing the Steelers, and I uh, I actually put on you know his pads and uniform and everything, and I go to the the huddle, and I try really hard to take a snap and be Tom Brady. I'm probably gonna die. Like that's not gonna go well, because Tom Brady isn't the way he is because he shows up to the game and whoo, tries really hard to be Tom Brady and win Super Bowls. Tom Brady's great because his entire lifestyle is fine tuned to one goal, to win football games, period. Like, I'm not, I'm not, like, advocating this. I think there's better things than winning football games to tune your life to. Because Jesus, becoming like him, doesn't just happen at, like, on-the-spot moments where we just live however we want, and then, you know, someone hurts us, and we're like, now I'm going to try really hard to love my enemy. Becoming like Jesus, just like becoming like Tom Brady, arises from an entire lifestyle that's fine-tuned into one thing, which is to become like him. You don't just try real hard to not be angry, or try real hard to not be anxious, or try real hard to not lust. No, you adapt his yoke, his lifestyle, become like him, become the kind of person for whom it's more natural not to lose your temper, or not to be anxious, or to love your enemies and not curse them. Which is a... Uh, this is a, brings us to another key concept for this series. We're going to revisit these, so if this feels like a lot, this is just kind of like a, a survey. We don't try to become like Jesus. We train to become like Jesus. 
We don't try to become like Jesus in these like on the spot moments of like immense willpower. We set up our lives to where the Christ likeness is just cultivated. It just like arises out of the way we live. If we just try to do what Jesus did in various circumstances, we'll fail. And we do fail. Like, aren't we tired of that? Like, aren't you sick of just, like, trying to not lose your temper? Oh, I did it, and I'll try again. I'll try not to look at porn. I'll try not to be anxious. You know, we have the classic, like, that was the last time. You know, and then it's not. You know, it's like, but Jesus' transcendent peace, his lust-free experience of life, his love for his enemies didn't just appear out of nowhere. It was cultivated from an overall way of life, a way of life that was empowered by and fully submitted to the Holy Spirit, that lived in communion with the Father and community with his disciples, and was marked by very specific practices that he did with his body. You see, you see Jesus doing all kinds of practices if you were to evaluate his lifestyle uh, throughout scripture like you're doing one of them right now like we as far as we can tell almost every sabbath every lord's day they didn't call it then back then they call it that back then uh, he was with other believers in a worship gathering hearing the word preached and taught he practiced the sabbath like he set aside one day like what would that do to your anxiety if you your life was set up to where you had one day completely set aside for rest and worship he lived in community he had long stretches of silence and solitude he would get up early and go away to be with God. He fasted and he celebrated. Like he fasted for 40 days at one point and then was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard based on how he celebrated. He had both of those, those rhythms. Those, both of those are spiritual disciplines, fasting and celebration. And then of course he deeply knew God's word. Like he breathed it. It came out of him all the time, always quoting the Bible. And he'd take naps, you know? Like we have Jesus record of Jesus taking naps in pretty intense situations. He was never in a hurry. He said no to stuff. Jesus' lifestyle, if you were to read the Gospels, to just like with that, with that lens of like, what, what do I see about Jesus' lifestyle? What are some of the things that mark his lifestyle? It's so captivating. And it's also so different from how most of us live. The worst way to try to follow Jesus or to become like him is to just live how everybody in the world lives and then like cram his yoke on top of that. That's like a double yoke lifestyle. That's cool in an egg, but not in like real life. Uh, that was a farm joke. We get some double, double yolk from our farmer, farmer egg guy. To just do everything that non-Christian neighbors do, but also try to be like Jesus. Like, watch the same stuff, live the same crazy life of, you know, Little League and whatever, but then try to be like Jesus. That's a weary and burdened life for sure. You can't have the lifestyle without the life. You can't have the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. And we become more like Jesus by training to be like, I'm not trying more. And that brings us to the oops. I don't know what, what, this, what these ideas sound like to you. Uh, to me, they were like a breath of fresh air and also like, why have I not heard of this before? And I think that's because of this oops that we see in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Let me read it here. Uh, we'll start in verse uh, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. It was right before Jesus ascends into heaven, his final instructions to his disciples, and then these are, this is the Great Commission. There's three parts. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
That's the first part. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the second part. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's the third part. And then the sweet promise. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We make disciples. We baptize them into the Trinitarian presence of God's people. And then we teach them to obey everything that he has commanded. Observe everything he's com- he has commanded. And I think that last part, that third part of the Great Commission is the oops. Uh, author Dallas Willard uh, calls it the great omission uh, because in recent church history it's been almost completely skipped over. I know personally I've skipped over it pretty much every time I've preached on this passage. But to fill Jesus' great commission, the church is called to teach people to obey everything that he commanded. Have you ever been a part of a church like that? A church that has a clear plan, a clear plan to teach people to obey teach people to obey crazy things like don't be anxious, don't worry about your life. Like that's crazy in our day and age. Teach people to to love your enemies or to forgive as you've been forgiven. Dallas Willard tells the story of preaching as a guest preacher at a church that had this huge Great Commission banner on the wall uh, in fancy font and said, go and make disciples of all nations. And they, it was a Baptist church, so of course they had baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Dot, 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 and surely I am with you <laughs> until the end of the age. Like, it's so tempting to do that with this passage. Just dot, 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 some of Jesus' instructions. I, again, I've been guilty of this for the long time. And what would it look like for lo- local, local churches to be communities of people who have a clear plan on how to fulfill all of the Great Commission? One of the things I wonder about our church uh, is that if God were to send us a bunch of new disciples, like a bunch of people who are like, Jesus is amazing, I want to follow him, and they were to, to join our community and become like us, like, would, that, would that be a win? Like if we were to, to multiply ourselves spiritually or we were all to become spiritual mothers and fathers to new, new believers, like would, would that be a good a good reproduction, a good DNA to reproduce. I think historically churches, you know, we, we, uh, we really focus on the first part, like go and make disciples, i.e. like get them in the door, or like build up the, the numbers and the budget. But then a person gets plugged into the local church, they come to see that everyone in the church is just as anxious or addicted to their phones or disinterested in the Bible as everybody else outside of the church. I got in trouble this past week for uh, uh, teasing CrossFit. So here's a, here's a good story involving CrossFit. If someone joins a, a CrossFit gym uh, because they're like, my system isn't working, my health, my fitness, I, I want to change, they're going to start doing the workouts, uh, but they're also going to meet people. They're going to join a community that's also doing the workouts. They're going to be people who have been doing the workouts far longer and who will challenge them and push them to grow and know how the workouts work and how to do them better and how to set goals. And then I did CrossFit for a little bit and there was all kinds of like diet recommendations and weight loss challenges that that all happened like within the community of CrossFit. CrossFit's a community who isn't afraid to actually put out effort in the pursuit of health. And this community just shamelessly calls their members to do it. You know, like if you just like came to like eat a pizza and watch them do the wad, it would just be like, wait, why are you here, bro? 
And sure, it's too intense for some. Like, you know, they, they don't, like, say everybody in the world has to do CrossFit. Though, if it's too intense, like, those folks can go to Planet Fitness. Ah, all right, you guys can get mad at me this week. But my point is, that was a joke. Planet Fitness is great. Gotta love Tootsie Rolls. My point is this. Jesus intended communities of his followers to be communities of practice, where we spur each other on to love and good works, where like the, the community is doing it, and then when new people join, we're not like, just like throw us a bone. They're like, no, this is, this is the wad. This is the workout of the day. Sorry, that's what that term means. This is the workout of the day, and this is what we're going to do. And it's part of the commission. Like, it's part of our king's and, and savior's commission to our church. Individually, this stuff is good news. Because if you feel like the house of your life is wobbly and you're in constant anxiety of the storm that might come, hear the invitation from Jesus to, to, to put his teaching into practice. Dive into it. Know it, first and foremost. And then make the practice of it the bedrock of your, your way of life. And if you're here today and you're weary physically, yes, of course, but also just that deep soul weariness, like no amount of like sleeping or days off seems to scratch. If you're burdened by the yoke of constantly trying to do better, get the guilty exhaustion of, of doing the world's plan for life with Jesus's on top of it, then hear Jesus's invitation to, to put it down, to put down that yoke, to take up his lifestyle where he's unhurried, where he's immersed in God's word, where he has space uh, in his life for hours with his father, where he has lots of time for his closest friends and long walks and good meals. Like that's the yoke of Jesus. That's his lifestyle. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. For, for those of us who have trusted in his work on the cross, that all our sinful burdens and striving has been, has been paid for by his blood. And that we've been made new. We have his spirit that makes all the practices actually matter and effective. The Bible says that Jesus was crushed for our iniquity. So now we can take his, we, we don't have to be crushed by the burden of our, our yoke, our way of life, our sin, our guilt and shame. So if that's the good news individually, the good news for us as a community is that it seems like when a group of Jesus followers really seek to live out his way of life, incredible things happen when we look at scripture. In Acts 2, it talks about a church who devoted themselves to practices, to teaching, to community, to loving one another, to living in the spirit. And it said God added daily to their numbers those who were being saved. What if we as a small little church, we took becoming like Jesus seriously together as a family, as seriously as we would take, you know, the goal to like all of us, you know, run a marathon next spring or something like that. And our community could become a city on a hill where the way of Jesus is, shines brightly for everybody. Where We have a, a non-anxious presence to the people in our lives where people come to us and they can really be heard and listened to. Why? Because we're not r running around frantically carrying our burdens, but we're walking uh, at life at Jesus' pace, full of the Spirit, able to pour it out to others. Let me pray.